0: for joining us. My name is Liz Brailsford. I'm president and CEO of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I love seeing this full room, so thanks for taking the time. We are here to discuss artificial intelligence and human collaboration. Just a few things that have been on our minds a little lately. Maybe a little bit more than a little. Uh, and we have Kevin Cassidy here from the International Labor Organization, one of our partners, and my friend Kevin. Thank you so much for joining us here. And uh, we also have David Evans of Centero Ventures and David Williams of AT&T. This par- uh, program is in part, no, this program is in partnership with the World Affairs Councils of America. Uh, my former organization, our national office in Washington, DC, and then also with the International Labor Organization. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, Thank you to the Dallas Business Journal for uh, sponsoring this program as well. We're appreciative to you. And then thanks for our promotional partners for this evening's event, AI Dallas and US India Chamber of Commerce. Thanks for spreading the word. And we have students. We have a lot of students in the audience tonight from across the metroplex. And our education work, the Council's Global Young Leaders Programs, provides essential opportunities for educators and students to engage with our work and our programming. So we're happy to have all of you with us. Thanks for making the trip. And I also want to thank our Council's institutional members this evening, AT&D. Thank you. One of our newest, by the way, uh, Dallas Baptist University, Dallas College, Harwood International, Haynes and Boone, Lockheed Martin, NEC Corporation of America and PNC Bank. We're really happy to have those partners with us. They help us thrive far into the future. <laughs> and speaking of members by the way, I have a few more uh, announcements than usual tonight, so bear with me, but speaking of membership. We are a members-based organization, and we need you. Every single one of you matters, and I mean that. So you can go on to our website at dfwworld.org to check out all of our membership options. And if you go to our website after the coming weeks, you will see a brand new website, Uh, Some of you may know, we are under a massive rebrand initiative. We've been doing this for about the last year, and we'll be unveiling it soon. And we are getting a new logo, a new website, a new look and feel, and I want you to know that our mission and our name are staying exactly the same, but we want to become better for you and our community that we so love. So please go to our website and become a member. If you're not, you matter, and we want you part of our community. Tonight's panel is moderated by our friend, my friend, uh, Margot Carter. As president of Living Mountain Capital and co-founder of CN.AI, Margot Carter strategically builds, advises, and invests in next-gen businesses. In fields of technology, construction, or real estate, Margot leads boards and teams from Dallas to Barcelona to places in between. Margot is passionate about AI. For the past seven years, Margot has been working as co-founder of CN, an artificial intelligence company for improving sales productivity and cleaning up messy data at a fraction of the time and cost, helping her customers generate impressive sales growth. Margo has recently been named named as a Director to Watch, a Top 50 Innovator and Disruptor, and a Top AI Leader in DFW by Dallas Innovates, Most Outstanding Director by the DBJ, and was named a Top 500 Business Leader in 2023, 2022, and 2021 uh, by DCEO. She is chair emeritus of the National Association of Cor- Corporate Directors, NACD, North Texas, and currently serves on two public company boards. I don't know how you do this all. <laughs> As a board member, Margot advised on innovative and disruptive strategies leading to the sale of both Interior Logic Group and Encore. She loves Dallas and is active in her community, and we can tell. She is a former member, and well, no, she's a member now and a former board member of our council, on the Executive Women's Roundtable of the Dallas Chamber, IWF, and on the Board of Governors for AJC, former president of AJC Dallas, and co chairs the Latino Institute. She is also an active partner and mentor at Capital Factory. And with that, please join me in welcoming Margo to the stage.
1: Thank you, Liz, my friend. As a former board member of the World Affairs Council, I just have to say huge kudos to Liz and the team for really like raising the roof on the programs and events. It's a noticeable, amazing, impressive difference. And I'm so par- proud to be part of it. In fact, I hope I win that lunch with you. <laughs> so if you haven't already, please donate. Thank you to everyone for joining us tonight. I see a lot of friends and new faces, and I'm so happy to see three schools here. That's amazing. Thank you for coming today and taking time out of your busy day and night to see us. We are so excited tonight to have this esteemed panel of artificial intelligence experts. And with that, I'd like to introduce um, Kevin Cassidy. We heard that he has nearly four decades of experience. Um, He's presently the director of the ILO, the International Labor Organization, and a representative to Bretton Woods, which I learned about in school and was happy to research and see that that was part um, founded in part after World War II for the International Monetary Fund, which is very impressive and interesting. Um, before that, he held several leadership and executive positions both at the ILO, the International Labor Organization, which we'll learn more about as well as with the UN and numerous organizations within the UN. So um, we're so excited to have him. Next we have my friend David Evans. He is um, managing partner of Arrow Ventures. It's an early stage venture fund and he and his team specialize in investing in AI companies. So We're gonna have to talk afterwards. Um, He started coding at 14 and um, launched his first company at 19 years old. He had two major exits. One of the bigger ones was the National Signage Network, and right now he's also an adjunct professor at UTD, and he's also on the mentor committee of United Way on the social innovation group accelerator. He's a graduate of University of Connecticut, and he was a a beneficial Hodgson scholar at Johns Hopkins University and he holds a certificate in corporate finance from Harvard. So we're excited to have him. Um, we got to spend some time together last night at the Dallas AI Institute, which was pretty exciting. Happy to share some of that D article with you and our next panelist, who um, is our only native Dallasite. So that's great. We all got here as fast as we could, but David Williams was born here. He's the Assistant Vice President at AT&T, and his current role, he's responsible for hyper-automation, which we're gonna learn more about today. He's appeared on Fox, ABC, CBS, NBC, NBC, Ebony Magazine, you name it, he's there. He's won numerous awards, too many for me to recite, but 2023 DCEO Corporate Innovator, 23 Tech Team of the Year, two times Dream in Black winner, two times at and diversity champion, and the list goes on and on. And I'm so honored to get to moderate the panel tonight with these guests. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Kevin Cassidy, David Evans, and David Williams to the stage. Thank you, You're welcome.
2: <clears throat> Sorry.
1: So, let's get comfortable. We have a full house here. I'd like to get started with kind of level setting. I see all kinds of ages and ranges of experience. I did an informal survey on AI experience. And so just to take a high level top, um, David Evans, would you like to just give a high level, what is AI?
2: Sure. So and- I tend to have a broad definition of artificial intelligence in that artificial intelligence is, is a machine simulating a range of human behaviors, things like reasoning or, um, or problem solving. So you've all encountered artificial intelligence before, and it, it, there's a really great example I'd, uh, I'd like to give you is how many people have ever been in a store and had a, a sales associate recommend a matching garment? You're buying a pair of jeans and somebody's looking to that somebody offers you a sweater that goes with it well. How many people have been on an e-commerce site like Amazon and you've been recommended a pair of jeans or you've been recommended another product that goes with it? Guess what? That's artificial intelligence, right? You have experienced artificial intelligence in more ways than you can actually imagine because it's taking a machine and simulating human behaviors and human type activities. So if you think about it through that lens, it's already here but you just don't know about it, and that's what we're gonna talk about tonight.
3: Yeah, So you know, one other thing I'd add to that too is I think AI, when you think about AI and generative AI, I think one of the big differences is is AI was really big on recognizing patterns. They would use AI to, oh, let's look at the big data, let's find the, the patterns, what's going on, what's the trend? And now, generative AI is creating patterns okay, you asked me this question, I got the answer, but I'm gonna put a whole bunch more with it, now you got 30 pages of the answer. Or you, you wanna get a picture of a bird flying over a space shuttle, I, I can figure out and, and create that visual pattern. And so I think that's kinda one of the differences also between AI and the, this new generative AI that everyone's talking about.
1: Thank you. So a lot of tonight we're going to be fo- focusing on AI in the workplace. So my first question is for all of you, and we can just go down, is how do you see AI collaborating with the workforce in general?
4: I, I think, you know, AI is a, a, another innovation in technology that has helped people do their jobs better. Um, the organization I work for, uh, the International Labor Organization, we're not anti-business. Actually, we were created at the end of World War I when capitalism was a new economy. So our job is to ensure that both businesses and people are actually uh, working together effectively and productively. So in terms of the AI, um, we've had it before uh, in earlier models, right? In the 1900s, it's uh, looking at uh, technology that is helping people uh, do the hard labor work. Uh, In the 50s and 60s, you have automated supply chain lines, uh, you know, assembly lines. And uh, now with AI, it's going to impact upon a different cohort, the kind of knowledge worker. So I think in terms of that, our job is just to make sure that people have good quality jobs. And I think that's really kind of the the nexus of of where the ILO sits in this discussion. So we're all for it. Uh, The ILO does not protect jobs. It protects people in the workplace. uh, And people who are managers and people who create jobs are also workers as well, too. So we just wanna make sure that, in fact, that as we start to introduce these technologies, um, that it doesn't burn people out, that it doesn't have big, big job displacement. And so far, AI does not. It is impacting upon the quality of work, but necessarily on the quantitative side of work.
1: Thank you, Kevin.
3: Yeah, look, I think that the way when I think about AI and human collaboration in the workforce, the thing that comes to mind of me is bigger Lego blocks. Um, you, can, you can do a lot in the way that we work today. But if I gave you a third arm, you might get a little bit more accomplished, right? And that's AI, it's an extra arm, it's an extra tool, an extra resource, and for those that can embrace it, then perhaps if you were coding and you were writing 200 lines of code a day, well now you might be able to write 20,000 lines of code a day. What could you do with that? What would your competition do with that? What would they do if you weren't keeping up, and they were, right? And so it's, when I think of AI and collaboration in the workplace, the two things that come to mind is, one, we have to embrace it, and two, it's bigger Lego blocks. We can do faster, bigger things with it.
2: So I I think everybody in this room has experienced the, uh, the fact that we have a labor shortage right now. And there, there's two sort of cyclical forces that, that are going on in, in concert with one another. And, and that is two things. One is um, we've got the lowest labor force participation in generations in, in the United States. And globally, in the developed world, we are not replacing our population above a normal rate. You've got two downward forces that are pushing down on our labor force and our supply of labor which is already short. We don't have enough nurses, we don't have enough teachers, we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough we have enough lawyers, but <laughs> <laughs> but there's plenty there's plenty of categories where we've got shortages. And and this is where this is the future of artificial intelligence is that we are going to be able to start to forestall some of those trends because those trends aren't reversing. We've moved from an agrarian society to a knowledge-based society and Having incremental children, there is no there there is no incentive to that to do that. When you were an agrarian society, you needed that. You needed more children to work the farm and work the fields and work the land. We don't need that anymore, and we're going to start to plug the gaps. We're going to start to plug the gaps in the labor force with artificial intelligence. And the beauty is, we're going to start to plug the gaps in the work that we don't want to do anyway. We're going to start to see artificial intelligence is going to take away the mechanical work and start to elevate human work. So, and that's the real key, is that we're going to elevate humans to doing the work that is uniquely human. Creative work, th- uh, the Creative work, problem solving, dealing with uncertainty, those are the things that we're going to start to see people get to
4: focus on rather than the mechanical parts. Can I push back a little bit on that? The the recent job numbers that came out in August had shown that we had grown by 185,000 new jobs. Uh, But the unemployment rate had also ticked up. And the reason for that is that the labor force participation has gone up by almost a million people. 745,000 people have joined the workforce. And the reason that we've had this uh, this labor shortage, in particular in critical uh, occupations, is that a lot of people decided to go back for more education higher education, skill sets, specialization skills, so that they can get better pay for themselves. Um, And AI and all other technological innovations help us not do the dangerous, dirty, and dull jobs and I think that that's great. But I do think that the important thing moving forward is looking at developing lifelong learning systems uh, for uh, young people, but also for all of us that are in the workplace. We are never going to have a chance to stop learning because you can't front load your education for 16 years and then expect to make money off of that for 40, and especially (laughs) today, with technology. Right.
1: I think that's an excellent point. We have to be lifelong learners. And I went back to school five, six years ago and got my certificate in AI at MIT because it was something I was interested in. So with that, what, what advice do you have for workers or, 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 or students now on what they should be studying and what kind of skills should they be learning now that will help them in the future?
2: Well, I guess I'm the one. I'm up. Um, so <laughs> the, it, 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 my advice is the same as it would be 25 years ago, is learn and understand your domain. And understand how to solve problems. Understand how to communicate. One of the biggest challenges as a developer, and I, I built a career in technology off of being able to sit here and do this, being able to communicate, uh, be able to communicate about the power of technology and what we can do with it, and f- to find ways to use technology to solve problems. That's going to become the core of many jobs. Finding ways to use technology. To solve problems. Right. So how do you do that? You learn a domain. You learn, you learn and understand not just the technology, but you understand hospitality. You understand legal. You understand deeply your particular subject matter so you can provide guidance to the tool because AI is just a tool. You need to provide it the context and the view of the world.
3: Yeah, I think that problem solving is a skill. That is going to increase exponentially across every industry. You know, um, the, the way that we solve problems today, whether you're using a wrench, a drill, AI, pick your tool, a scaffold, you know, lawyers with a red ink pen. You pick your tool. Regardless of that, the question is what problem are you solving? Um, Dave runs a very successful business, he's been in AI forever. Um, we were just talking about how. Folks come, they approach him, they have these interest in AI, but they haven't figured out what problem to solve. Well, man, what is a $30 billion AI engine good for if you don't have any milk on the floor to clean up, right? You can't figure out what to go do with that mop or that broom or whatever. And so there's still that part that AI doesn't solve for. What problem are we solving? Is it too cold in here? Is it too hot? Do we have enough drinks? Is the carpet right? Is the lighting? Is there's all these different things that we can solve for. But the question is, what are we going to solve for? What's the value of it? And, And at that point, that's when you're in business.
4: It's good to hear that you didn't say technology or maybe I missed it, um, but I, I, it, it's ubiquitous. It's all around us. And you know, what used to be called you know, maybe pejoratively the kind of uh, you know, these skill sets that are now called cognitive skills before it was soft skills, right? So you mentioned problem solving, absolutely important. Data literacy, digital literacy, financial literacy, um, teamwork, communication, right? uh, being able to be a lifelong learner, curiosity. I mean, all of those skill sets are very important. And I was listening to a podcast recently of a gentleman who runs a program at Emory, and he was saying that what AI does for us today and these LLMs that drive it is to say that it, it basically replicates what we've been learning in our liberal arts education an interdisciplinary approach to this how to look at different data sets how to look at different elements from different perspectives and I think that's what's really really important moving forward so for the students today yes of course you know learning the technology and all of that but really get back to the core, uh, the core of intellectual curiosity of challenging that and being able to defend those points and that means having a broad base of knowledge on a many different areas that are going to help you be more successful in your future careers.
3: Right, Google has a a job out. I think the Economist said they had a job for 900,000 starting for anyone who wants to be an AI um, data scientist. It's gonna take you a lot of math to get there, right? But before you get there, you still need to figure out what problems you need to solve and how to collaborate and teamwork, as Kevin was just saying. Without that, you you just can't go as far as you think as you imagine you just can't
1: thank you Kevin what areas or industries do you think have benefited most so far from AI and then we can pass that along
4: Yeah, I, I, I was thinking about you know is AI something new or is it just the kind of new terminology that we use for things that have been around so I mean, I got lost a bit earlier today going to the Garland High School, although I was supposed to go to another school, um, but I quickly went on to my, uh, you know, my maps, Google Maps, and I found my way, so that actually helps. Um, with cybersecurity, right? I mean, that has been really helped by AI. Um, But anything, medicines, development of medicines. I mean, there was something called COVID-19 that kind of shut down the global (laughs) economy. Um, But the development of those vaccines actually came through in this modeling. So they're able to accelerate the development of pharmaceuticals that are happening to, you know, look at these pathogens that can really, you know, impact on the world of work. So there are so many different impacts that have happened so far. But I think that the most important thing that we see in terms of the impact of AI and maybe the sectors themselves, is the fact that it's not going to be about, you know, um, replacing jobs themselves it's going to be augmenting those jobs and freeing people up to do other types of activities so that can apply to every single um you know occupation that there is today
1: thank you would you guys like to add anything
3: yeah i, I mean as far as industries that where we see ai the, uh, to me the question is uh, i think the industry that does not embrace ai the companies that do not embrace AI are the ones that may struggle. Uh, those that do,
2: won't. So, I mean, I, to, to, to quickly just add, I think the, the, the places where we, you may not have seen it are places where we have what are called structured data, right? So things like packet routing on a telephone network, things that are very sort of structured information, very bits and bytes oriented. So advertising and data routing and missile guidance systems, that's old AI over the last 20 years. The new world of AI is now unstructured data. We've now sort of opened this Pandora's box of we've opened up the legal field. It used to be hard to put AI around the legal field. Now it's going to get turned on its head. Marketing and, uh, marketing and communications, the creation of copy, those things are going to start to change dramatically in how we build in those industries because those are unstructured activities. So that, uh, that's what we're going to start to see change most dramatically over the course of the next five to ten years.
1: David do you, Evans, do you think it's easier now to be an entrepreneur or harder?
2: I've had this debate quite frequently um, because the uh, I would almost say it's easier to get started as an entrepreneur, right? Like I had to hand code stuff. I had to buy servers. I had to like have an office for my people to come into. Like there, there was a lot more sort of startup costs associated with that. So that's an amazing benefit to get started. The challenge, however, is that that's now across the board. No one has to buy servers. No one has to have an office. No one needs an army of coders. They can now use ChatGPT to start coding. So the question becomes, how quickly can you innovate, how quickly can you adapt That's what's gonna test your skills as an entrepreneur in sort of this new era is how quickly can you stay ahead of where the market is gonna go because markets are gonna change on not necessarily decade or generational scale, they're gonna start to change on annual or biannual scales.
1: So what have been some of the unintended consequences so far of AI?
4: I mean, from a labor point of view, you know, driving AI is a large workforce around the world. You know, developing these datas, labeling, identifying, right? Really, you know, verifying that data. Um, So, for example, in the Philippines, where call centers back in the, uh, you know, the uh, early 80s and so blew up in that area, um, you know, now people are switching over and being crowd-worked into uh, into, uh, this work, uh, you know, which is a piece-rate work. And I think for us, the concerns that we have is that, you know, someone who is working on a digital labor platform, there is no intermediation, so if they do some work, and that the employer, which is an online employer, um, do we all read the terms and agreements of the contracts that we sort of click on and get our new software? So a lot of people actually get themselves into situations where they're doing a lot of work and may not get paid for that. So I I think what we kind of concern ourselves with is how that impacts upon people. That's one aspect. And then it is about, you know, this kind of idea of autonomy and the work quality. So the other areas that people are concerned about in our sphere of uh, of people who work, let's use the term labor uh, as a you know, put it on the side for a bit. Um, So the idea of algorithmic management, you know, it's kind of like that annoying boss who is saying, you know, are you doing your job? Have you delivered this report? Have you done this today? Right? Now you're going to actually systematize it through a computer and it's going to be telling you every single second you need to be quicker and faster. You know, there are diminishing returns in productivity in many ways. We've seen that, right? I mean, over the last uh, few decades, people are becoming less and less productive even though we have better and better tools for ourselves. So I think we have to be really concerned about the fact that you know, it's not just about the machines and these great you know, possibilities that the machines can bring us, but it's about the people themselves that help drive that and then add value to that because in and of itself, the technology should be helping us live better lives uh, for ourselves here and around the world.
3: Yeah, you know, and I think unintended consequences, the first one I think is, um, man, um, AI sure is driving a Nvidia stock up. I don't know if that was a negative, unintended consequence. You know what I'm saying? I don't know about you, but I saw the signs. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I wouldn't say every unintended consequence is bad, but uh, there are some. You know, if you ever play around with AI tools in like on TikTok or some of the uh, content creating tools where you can play around with pictures and videos and stuff. Um, when you start messing around with that, what you'll see is, you know, depending on who you are and, you know, um, um, the, the color of your skin, male, female, et cetera, you'll quickly find out that the AI doesn't know what to do with every face. It's still young, right? Chat GPT's is a year now, something like that. So it, it, it still has a ways to go. So, an unintended consequence, I think, is that we know that the AI of today is young and needs more um, participation from everyone, right? We don't just want AI for one generation and not another. We don't want it for one demographic and not another, for one gender, not another. And so I think that's another you know, layer that we need to look at to make sure. I think Samsung probably opened up an unintended consequence and showed us you know, what, you know, that, um, some of the dangers of AI. And so, what we've learned from that, at least within AT and T, we created our own Chat GPT. It's a inside of a sandbox, and you have free reign. Well, corporate security and privacy and legal, and everybody stands around you watching, you know. But they don't stop you in the in the box, you know. You just feel like you're in an aquarium. But, but it, it, nevertheless, you know, we've learned from that unintended consequence. So there's a few out there. I think we just have to consider that. AI, or at least the generative AI, and to Dave's point, um, the um, use of AI in unstructured domains is still very brand new. It's not a 30-year-old lawyer. It's not a very seasoned venture capitalist. It is still very new, and it has a long way to learn.
2: Dave? Dave? And in that learning curve, the thing that we're, the, the piece that we're sort of leaving out right now is we're not thinking about how we, we advance the workforce of the future. Because one of the challenges that we have is AI is going to take over a lot of the low-hanging fruit. You know, there's a common phrase of AI is not coming for your job. Somebody using AI is coming for your job. Amen. And... The person that's using AI though is a senior level person, is somebody that's skilled at that craft. So you're taking away the junior associate attorney, or you're taking away the junior associate in the venture capital firm, because that work is being automated through the use of artificial intelligence. Well, here's the problem. Part of how you become a senior developer, part of how you become a managing partner of a venture fund is just start at the bottom. You take the lower value work, the low risk work, to learn and to begin to experience those things but we're forgetting about this and how we're training our workforce how do you become a senior how do you become a senior developer without ever being a junior developer when I got started coding it was they threw me all the junk. like oh shit lost we lost some but we lost we lost, a, we lost a coder you need to go maintain this right, right. <laughs> well uh, nobody gave me any guide nobody gave me any information I just had to go do it like they, they gave it to me. Figure it we're, out. we're losing those figure it out moments that are formative for early career uh, for early career employees, and that's something that we really need to that, that we need to factor because that is absolutely an unintended con- consequence of AI. Because we're going to expect people to parachute into a job at a senior level.
3: If I could just double click on that because <laughs> it's a, a lot of young folks here. <laughs> so, well, I guess it's not. Is it double tap? I guess double click <laughs> is mine. I just told my agent. Whatever, y'all.
2: It's it's hey Google. Yeah,
3: right, 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 right. It's a, right. Hey Google, Siri. You you can't have Android green, green bubbles. And <laughs> so, but but to that point, how do you become a senior level whatever without that junior level experience, right? And and that's the world that this next generation has to contend with, right? We've figured out our side, you have to figure it out for you now. But I think in that journey, knowing that AI is a tool that so many are using, if you can embrace it quickly and apply it in a way where you can build your own Thank you. exercise, your own muscle of solving problems in that domain, whichever you pick, then you're going to be able to accelerate maybe some of your learning. And maybe you get a shot at contending to, for advancement. But I don't know how you do it without taking those shots, embracing AI, and trying to solve slightly above junior level or maybe a bunch of junior level problems. Right. right?
4: If I may also, I don't think we should just outsource all our creative thinking to, to a machine in, in one way or another. I think it's important that we maintain that. I mean, looking at some of the people here, I'm sure that you are your own, let's call it BI, your own biological uh, intelligence, right? You use the knowledge you had through the years of the work that you've done in order to make decisions for that. Uh, my son-in-law, who is a very good lawyer out in San Francisco, when he was dating my daughter very early on, every time I would say something, he would go to the, his phone and he would check me in real time, he would do a Google on me. Now, he may be pulling up sources that may be valid, maybe not valid. I mean, how are you looking at, you know, verifying the veracity of that information as well, too? So I think it's important not to lose that. Now, of course, my five-year-old granddaughter can actually, you know, use a Roku remote. She can put on the television. She can uh, order off of her mother's phone, all sorts of things, and on the credit card you find <laughs> later. So, you know, technology is in our DNA. We want to learn. We're a curious species, and I think that that's really quite important. But we can't just outsource that creativity, and if we lose that, muscle reflex, that memory muscle, and, and really pushing ourselves, I think that might be a problem in the future as well, too. Just relying on the technology uh, to do the job for us rather than using that and us as the human intermediation in making value from that.
1: I think you have a really good point, Kevin, and we really have to take that to heart. But I also think it will help some of us that aren't very creative be more creative, so to counter that. Um, also just a speed of how quickly everything's going, right? We used to take years to clean up data, you'd have analysts, people offshoring. When we started doing it at CN, it would take a week to turn the data around. Now it takes less than a day. Sometimes just hours, right? And this is huge databases. So everything continues to go faster and faster.
3: And Margot, I gotta imagine that in your company, that is perceived as a value add. Right? It's not that, oh, man, we don't get to work on this for three weeks. It's like, oh, we can turn this over to the client in a day.
1: It's incredible because our customers can increase productivity immediately at a fraction of the time and fraction of the cost. And then they refer
3: you to more customers.
1: Right, so it helps. I think we're being more productive, and I love efficiency, so I'm super excited about the future. However, to add on to a question a little bit about what you said, how do you see AI improving inequities or inflaming them, whether it's in the workplace or in education?
4: Uh, You know, when we look at these issues, we're not just looking at it from the U.S. perspective. The International Labor Organization is an international development agency, so we deal with some of the poorest countries in the world, right? So introduction of technology is not a technical issue, it's a political issue, right? You can get GPS-enabled combine harvesters with soil sensors and have, you know, food security in sub-Saharan Africa, where 76 percent of the people are working on subsistence agriculture. What do you do with the tens of millions of people who are, who are put out of a job? So we have to look at that. The other thing as well, too, is that AI is going to benefit high industrialized countries, what we call industrial market economy countries. But developing countries themselves will fall behind because not everybody has access to the internet. You know, one-third of humanity does not have access to the Internet. So they're already left out of the the equation. Also, electricity. We take that for granted. In the United States, we have 100% access to electricity, right? But in many parts of the world, and there's almost a billion people who don't have access to electricity. What is going to happen to those countries that fall behind, right? I mean, are they just going to be commodity producers that will then, you know, look at lower prices, lower prices? You know, work sits at the nexus of the economic, the social, and the political. And I'll just tell by, uh, by a sort of a quick story. The ILO came into being at the end of World War I. At the end of World War I, you had tens of millions of young men coming back from war who needed to do one thing, how to kill, how to be a soldier. So they were coming back to all of these countries without jobs waiting for them. It was an amazing problem that we were trying to to look at, and how do you, you know, get people, uh, you know, productive, get them a job, have them work towards a betterment of the future. And if you don't do that, then you've got chaos. And if the United States cannot be an island because we are so integrated, hyperglobalization, our global supply chains, we saw that through COVID-19, those had almost shut down. So if we don't look at those problems over there, where our fact- where the factories are, with international buyers and local suppliers, and all of that work that needs to be done, so all of this great technology is not going. To help those people, will they fall further and further behind? Will they get worse? Will it become worse and worse for them? Will they react in negative ways towards countries like ours? So I think we have to look at this from a very wide perspective.
1: Thank you, Kevin.
3: Oh man, um, you know I spend a lot of time in schools, and um, I think there is a digital divide that is going around. Um, I work at AT and We're doing a lot to try to close that divide. Um, I'm doing things myself personally to try to close that divide. Um, and when I think about what does AI mean in regards to creating more or fewer issues in, in regards to that disparity, I feel like there's gonna be this, this digital divide is going to get wider, faster, yeah. and, and you also get a pole vault that can throw you launch you further. I think the divide gets wider and you get a pole vault, a springboard that can throw you further. For those that embrace AI, you can learn a lot quick. If I'm starting a dry cleaners right now in Dallas, Texas, who are the top dry cleaners? What's the best, I could ask these questions at ChatGPT. What's the best way to market? What's the best way to beat my competition? What's the best looking flyer? I can ask all these different questions and close these knowledge gaps that I don't even know. I'm not a marketer, I'm not a this, I'm not a that. I can close all these gaps and get to it faster. Or I could avoid it, and my competition is going to do that. And my gap in between myself and my competitor is going to get wider. Now, if I use that AI as a tool, I can compete. I can have a better chance at it. And for those that have access to it, I think the key word is just embrace. Wherever you're at, just embrace it at your level and try to use it as best as you can, because somebody else that's doing the same thing you're doing is going to try to.
2: So uh, I'll take it a slightly different tact and, and sort of make the statement that AI has no morality nor conscience. AI is going to project forward all of the failings and broken elements of our society today. It's taking what's in the past and it's projecting it into the future. So everything, and I think both Kevin and David have have basically talked about that, is that if you think about it widening the divide, we are going to lean in to our biases. You go to image generation tools. You want to see sexism? Go to an image generation tool and ask for photos of women in positions of authority. Those things... There is no conscience and there is no morality. It's going to project that forward. As a society, as human beings, we strive to get better. Our conscience, our morality, those values want us to root those things out of our society and systems. But guess what? Those models are static. And we're going to take those things and we're just going to lean into it. We're going to lean into inequity. We're going to lean into biases because that's what happened before and that's one of the biggest challenges when you hear talk about AI biases, when you hear talk about AI bias, it's about perpetuating the mistakes of the past because that's what we do, we plot them forward.
1: I'd like to take a little bit of a counter to that because I think AI sees patterns and truth that people don't see and you can really root out some of the inequalities. For example, what you might think is the best salesperson might be the person who has the most revenue and the biggest commissions but that person might have the best customer never sold for the past 20 years. Hmm. And you might have someone else who's a real hustler who has bad geography or a bad, a bad bad leads, and they're really the be- she or he are, is really the best salesperson. So I'm finding that it's actually helping prevent inequality.
4: If it's programmed in that way. Mm-hmm. I think that's the one thing we have to be careful of. I mean, I've looked at sort of jobs of the future. Proto-planet harvester is my favorite job and (laughs) microfilm installer. But also, you know, algorithm bias auditors, right? Some people who's coming in and looking at that because if you're getting people from around the world, there's cultural relativism as well too, right? And when people are in the Philippines, you know, building up these LLMs, right, they're going to be coming at it from their perspective, right? Mm -hmm. If you do it in Spain or if you do it in Cameroon or you go to East Watini, everybody's going to have a slightly different take on all of that. But also it's to say in terms of the kind of knowledge base and how people, as a species, and you know, some of you probably have traveled quite widely in your careers. I've been to about 68 countries, and I'm, I'm always impressed by the curiosity of people. So, for example, when uh, mobile te- uh, telephony was coming out you know, in the late 80s and the 90s, when it went into Kenya, it went into East Africa, and so it created tremendous opportunities in the growth of um, small and medium-sized enterprises because now people were able to connect with one another. Um, banking you know, was actually really pioneered in Africa because they had no choice but to use the telephone to do that. So I think once people are given the opportunity to use technology, and that is through the learning, the educational system, it is through the exposure, it's having access to the internet, once you're able to leverage that, there is no difference from that young group sitting back there and a young group that I may have met in in Kampala in Uganda last year. So I think really what we're looking at here is that it can be absolutely liberating and will be eventually.
3: And we need everyone to participate, absolutely every demographic, every country, every corner of the world. We need that participation.
1: And with that, we have a lot of questions from the students. (laughs) And I'm sure a lot of you have questions as well. So I'd like to get us started. I was handed a number of questions from the students. And one of the students asked, um, from Lake Highlands High School, where do you see AI in 10 years from now?
2: I, I mean, I guess this is my job, right, is to is predict where it's going to be in 10 years. Um, I, I think, generally speaking, so the biggest trend that I, that I think you're going to see come across the next 10 years is technology or, or compute power has been trapped under glass for the last 50 years, right? You've had to have a, a mouse and a keyboard. You've had to have a, a touch interface. What's going to happen is we are going to more seamlessly integrate computer power and compute technology into our daily lives. The the speed of development of software is going to mean that the desktop PC isn't going away. Your laptop's not going to go away. There's certain things that are better consumed in a large format because you have more area, you have more uh, more visible area. There's certain things that are better consumed on a mobile device. Quick glance, my phone tacked up on my dash to give me those directions to Garland High School. That's better consumed on my mobile phone, I don't need to be constantly say, look for a turn in, a, in three quarters of a mile and have no visual representation. But then there's also cases that we're gonna deliver on the promise of sort of ambient computing of what hey Google, hey Siri, hey Alexa was supposed to be. To be able to have iterative active conversations, not just with our lights and say hey, turn on the AC, but to be able to have conversations about How well, who is our best performing salesperson this week? Is there any, are there any key facts I should know in my car on the way into work to be on, to know, hey, are there any key facts that I need to know before our sales meeting today? Is there anybody that's out today? Are there any scheduling conflicts? And being able to have that conversation and have access to compute in real time as a true digital assistant, that's where we're going to see compute go. And it's going to look very, very different how we interact with, uh, with computing power.
3: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that in 10 years, that's a very far, <laughs> far, far reaching, especially at the pace we're in. Um, 80s to 90s, you could kind of predict something. 90s to, but right now, 10 years away is like 1,000 years, um, at least if you ask my son. And so
2: um,
3: I would say, I think, I, I agree wholeheartedly with what Dave was just saying. I, I would also say, I think that is you know, will become an assistant. It'll become an imaginary friend to you. It'll be that close to you. It'll, you'll talk to it, it'll know your, your, your jokes, your thoughts. You, I mean, not necessarily because it's reading your mind, but because you're talking to it, you're having a conversation with it. But I do think that AI will become that close to us. I think we'll be able to use it in ways where it's not in your pocket, or just on your wrist, or at your desk, It'll, it'll feel a lot more human, more natural. You know, as David was saying, you're driving to work in the car and you just ask whoever, whatever, and, and that answer comes back to you. I think those frictionless, effortless experiences will happen more than just with Alexa at home.
4: Look, I think AI is going to change every single occupation that we have today and occupations that don't exist. Actually, the jobs in the future actually don't even have titles right now, so that's uh, something to look at. I'm a bit of an amateur historian, and I like to look at the technology from before and how that's changed. So you look at all of the heavy equipment that did all of the dull you know, and dangerous jobs, and now you see all these construction sites using all this very advanced equipment, building up buildings even quicker. You see through the introduction of these, um, uh, these um, uh, you know, production shops. And so now with the automated shops, I'm going into Asia and looking at these amazing shops that are almost touch-free. It's all machines that are sort of putting together these machineries for it. There always it has to be a human intermediation, and I think that that's important. Um, so I, I think that it can be very positive, but I don't think that technology for technology's sake is valuable. I think technology that helps human beings live better quality lives, that's where we should be looking at.
1: Well, we have one more question I'm gonna take from the students, and then we're gonna open it up for questions, so start thinking about what your questions are. The last student question is, is what type of government regulations do you think there should be? (laughs)
3: <laughs> oh, my God. I have lots I got of into ideas. this conversation <laughs> <What>? in Dubai. <laughs> man. Oh, my God. Man. <laughs> yeah.
4: Good. I don't know if that's a positive or a negative. Right. <laughs> look, I, I mean, again, because, uh, you know, we look at people and the interface of people with the world of work, right? It's a way, I mean, it's an amazing way in which we've been able to, you know, form our lives around us, right? When we ask people, what do you do uh, for a living, right? Because we identify with the work that we have. So for our point of view is that, we say that all of these changes that are taking place, there has to be a conversation. There has to be a conversation between management and the people who are actually there who are working for those companies, right? Because anybody who's worked in HR knows that your most valuable and natural resource is actually a good and talented workforce. So you want to make sure that people actually have a part in the growth of that company as well, too. So you have to actually, when you're making these changes and introducing this, people have to be a part of that. Studies in Europe show that where you have these high social interactions between the workforce and management in companies, and this is in Germany and the Nordic countries as well, they welcome the introduction of technology. So I think once people know that the technology can help them, give them a better opportunity, maybe raise their wages, maybe they have greater opportunities in that company to grow, I think that's important. So you have to actually have a process in place at the company level, better at the company level, because that's where technology has the greatest impact. And those are the people who know how to make the product. So I think engaging people in that conversation is important, not just. Dictating and imposing it on them because you're not going to get a lot of people who are going to want to work in that environment. Unfortunately,
3: Dave, how much regulation would you like? right now? <laughs> Zero. I mean, it, uh,
2: the, the general problem is, is
4: that why am I not surprised? Well, and it, and
2: it, and, but it, it's, it's even yep. more from a pragmatic from a pragmatic perspective, not just pure capitalist perspective, is that even the teams that even teams at OpenAI don't know what's really coming next. Like sure. we don't understand. They, they don't understand some of the inner workings of what they've created. They know it, it's still very black box. So if the people that created it don't know what it does, how do we then regulate it and regulate what you can and can't do with it? That's problem number one. Problem number two is this genie is out of the bottle. We cannot put it back in. To create these models simply requires compute power. Correct. We can't. It's not like it's enriched uranium where we can control the supply of enriched uranium. It simply requires computing power, which is ubiquitous. Now, you may not have enough to train your own, uh, your own chat GPT, but at the end of the day, th- these techniques are now in the ether. We have now told the entire world how to enrich uranium. And they just gotta figure out the ways to do it on their, on their own scale. So it's gonna be a tough battle to regulate until we have some semblance of how the, uh, how the technology comes together.
3: I had this conversation with a guy from Germany. So it's funny you mentioned that. And they actually kind of welcome regulation though. Yeah. Um, the... <laughs> <laughs> They're German. They do. They... <laughs> but in that conversation with, with him, um, there is a, a thought where you do need some level of global um, oversight regulation or rules of the road, right You don't want AI um, not s- s- serving women as well as it serves men. You don't want that right you, in, in any demographic, however you want to slice it and so you need something that, that that will set some boundaries, right? Maybe your AI is for your country, right? Before we bring it over into my country or et cetera, et cetera. Um, but to David's point as well, you cannot handcuff this thing yet. You can't. It's like, what do they say in Facebook? It's like, turning the lights on at 11 o'clock in a college party. It's like, all right, it's over with. So you, you don't want to do that. You, you, you don't want to do that. You want... David and every other technologist to go play with this thing as much as they can and figure it out so that we can understand how far we can take it, what we can do. Can we reach Mars, the moon, who knows, right? You just want to have it in a way where there is enough oversight that, you know, Terminator and the Matrix and all that never comes true. (laughs)
4: You know, just maybe to slightly push back, I mean, you know, the the ILO is a normative agency, so we're able to set international standards, but it's not, you know, the kind of functionaires or bureaucrats like myself who are doing this, right? We have a tripartite nature, so it is the government, so Department of Labor, Department of State are there. We have the labor unions, so AFL-CIO, SEIU, and others, but at the table is Walmart, Disney, and Coca-Cola, I mean, and all the other major companies around the world. They're the ones sitting there designing what the framework will be in terms of how do we make this all work because there are nefarious actors out there. You may want to have a more efficient and effective program, but what happens if somebody said, how do I place a pathogen into a water source to kill the most amount of people in X country? It can be used for really bad purposes. So I think you do have to have some guardrails. And that's what the ILO does. It helps set the rules of the road that, you know, again, it is giving the general parameters and it is up to the countries themselves to develop national legislation that is more effective and appropriate. I don't want to stifle innovation. No one wants to do that because that's how we move forward as a species. But I do think you have to have some guardrails. Otherwise, things spill out of bounds and have unintended consequences.
1: I have a lot of follow-up questions, but I'm going to open it up to the audience. Does anyone have questions? Matthew, Layden?
3: All the hard questions go to you, man.
2: <laughs> so coming off of that, talking about governments and regulation, what about the legal aspect? You haven't really talked about that at all. And we've got, you were talking before about, well, it used to take decades for things to change or generations, and now it's literally years. And the legal system can't keep up with that. You know, Just take the bare minimum of, Sarah Silverman and, and the writers suing um, OpenAI for copyright infringement. That type of lawsuit takes a minimum of three to seven years to resolve. In three years, where the heck are we going to be? So how does legal catch up, or can it catch up, or does it just become a free-for-all where we, copyright is no longer a thing, and then we start to stifle innovation because I can no longer protect it?
4: You know, policy always lags behind innovation. That's it just has always happened that way. Um, but I do think uh, in many of these instances, you know, that we, we do have to realize that there are other actors in this as well, too. So you may want to introduce something that maybe your insurance company will not support. You know, there, there are other ways in which you as a business are going to be constrained, because businesses like certainty. If there is a is there the possibility that there is legal action against you because you are implementing a technology, you know, I mean, the, the law department is going to, the legal department is going to tell you, well, let's hold on to that, let's worry about that. So, so I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's a conversation. It's all about dialogue. It's all about communicating both sides of that equation.
1: Ray, Termini?
5: Yeah. Several years ago, I attended a World Affairs, uh, World Affairs Council program. And the question was, what would you advise your grandson, granddaughter to study in order to meet the challenges of the future. And of course, technology was considered to be very strong, mathematics, science. And I asked the question of, is there any value today to a strong liberal arts education? And I got laughed at. But he said, look, and I think you had said it, in order to be, a lot of the jobs that you train for today will not be there by the time you get out of school. So yes, there is a value to reading, writing, and comprehension. So I ask you, what would you recommend to the students here of how do you chart a career that you think will be meaningful by the time they graduate from college?
3: I almost wonder why they asked me that on these panels, because my answers to this is not the right answers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you get it from so, Kevin and Allegra, yeah, right? So
3: so look, th- there are a lot of curriculums that I think kids could study and, and that will help them do well, the math science stuff, critical thinking, all that kind of stuff. But you know, how many how many classes teach passion? When I listen to billionaires and millionaires talk, it's like, man, I had enough grit to go through it. You know, it was just crazy. I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying. It's all these things, and and that's what the kids want. They don't necessarily just want to stop it just being, you know, whatever kind of way. They want to shoot for the moon. Okay, where is the passion being taught? Where is the grit? I, I hire a lot of folks on my team. The number one thing, I don't care how technical you are or are not. Grit is a must. So you could be not technical and very gritty and secure a job on my team, and there are plenty of folks that do, and they build all sorts of technical stuff. So for me, I think, when I think about that question, the thing that I think is missing the most, I'm thinking about my own son and his education, his journey. What's missing the most? Where is the grit? Where is the passion? Where is the fight and fortitude to go do something and make a mark in this world, right? Where is that part? That will take you a long way, regardless of whether you're in poetry or math.
1: Thank you so much. That was a great, that was a that was great, great answers. I know we could go on all night. I'm getting the cutoff sign. Oh. <laughs> but um, I think we'll all be around for a little while if you want to ask us questions afterwards. It's been such a pleasure getting to speak with you
0: tonight. Thank you. Thank you. So, my mind is uh, blown and I think there's a lot to think about for all of us. Uh, That was really wonderful. Thank you so very much. We have a small token of our appreciation for all of you. And again, please donate to North Texas Giving Day between now and midnight for a chance to give and win. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next time.